Hello everyone, editing Frank again. Sorry to bother you this time. We we had a couple technical problems with recording this episode, and in that we accidentally recorded via our laptop mic and not our usual mic. So it's there's a colossal amount of echo. I managed to salvage the audio, I believe, with a couple of tools here and there. You can't really solve echo, but I think it's listenable, uh, and it was a really fun and interesting discussion, and I think it was worth doing. So yeah, hope you enjoy the episode, have a great day, and now let's begin! Welcome back to another episode of The Left Page. I guess we made it a fortnightly podcast because reading a short story or a book a week, recording and editing was a bit unreasonable only for now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, hello Bruno, how have you been? I've been, been fine, how are you guys? I don't think we can answer. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm trying to be at least polite. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> We're doing good too, uh, quite busy, as I realized I made a a huge semester. I got yeah. a bit big semester on my hands. That's gonna be fun. I got I got some stuff that will actually be useful for the podcast as well, yeah. as you will find out in due time. Okay, so that said, introductions good. We're here today to be talking about a short story once again. This time from Fyodor Dostoevsky. Hardly a man that needs an introduction, but uh, the famous Russian author, popular by titles such as Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov. The list goes on. The list goes on, <laughs> simply. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking about a short story from 1877 called The Dream of a Ridiculous Man in brackets, a fantastic narrative. Yeah. Uh, it was actually recommended to me previously while listening to the end of the year Owls at Dawn podcast in their special sticky leaf section where they recommend the short story and it was this one. So thank you guys for that. Let's get going. It's Strange and weird one, and I guess it's yeah, a fun one. Troubling one. O- always. <laughs> but it's a fun one as, I guess, the reason to why we're doing it. Because on the one hand, it's a good introduction to Dostoevsky in the yeah. sense of, like, what is the ge- some of, what are some of the general pictures and essences in his work? Yeah. Like, what is he grasping at? Yeah, what you can expect as well from a Dostoevskyan character as well. Exactly. And on the other hand, it's, I guess it's a different story in, well, when we look at, because it's an individual story, it focuses on a single character and on a, an internal experience. And I think those, it's a nice practice run for doing that for other works. For example, if we, and I like to, I think it'd be fun to get around to the posthumous memories of Braskovic. Yes, yes. From Marshall Justice, as we yeah. did, uh, two weeks ago, which is a pretty, an incredible work, and but all in due time. So, Bruno, where do we start with the dream of a ridiculous man? Yeah, so I think that the most important thing to begin with is the brackets with the fantastic narrative. There's actually, uh, sorry, I, I will not perturb all of you with big essays about uh, big essays, big essays <laughs> about literature and literature critics. But generally, when an author begins a story with such a thing as these brackets, like a fantastic narrative, you can expect generally one thing, but even more than one aspect that will be going on. The first one is, if you say, uh, Edgar Allan Poe does this a lot, if you say that something is fantastic and out of this world, you're basically trying to make the the people who are reading to believe in you. And to believe in you in a sense like a person of your family is, is telling you a ghost story or a, a haunting story. And in this scenario, the story is quite utopian at, at a point. So I think that the geniosity of saying right at the the beginning that it is a fantastic story, fantastic narrative. It's a way of making the reader 
know what is coming to him and have a, a bit of a psychological background for the so the experience of the short story is not as shocking i don't know how to say it, because the, the story is really bizarre if you don't think about it as a utopian style or a manifesto yeah it's a very it creates a certain expectation and that says that you lead the readers to expect like this is going to be something in a sense out of this world yeah exactly and, and i think that the dostoevsky operates this this technique like a maestro because you would expect like i don't know a fairy or an alien something out of this world but he's only talking about a dream which a completely depressed man becomes not happy but he discovers what he calls the truth so it's basically a conversion it's basically a a clairvoyance if you yeah. if, if it, you will. it it then leads us to the question of like because there's nothing particularly fantastic about the narrative. Yeah. It's, it's the story of a man that has a very powerful and changing dream, and he changes his life for it. Well, that, that leads us to the question, like, then why is this being called fantastic? This, a story like this doesn't necessarily require us, uh, which is in English, uh, the expression, the suspension of disbelief. Yeah. It doesn't require us to change our expectations, in a sense to be prepared for something unforeseen. No, it's a dream. Yeah. Then why is this narrative fantastic? And I think that can lead us to some interesting questions. Yeah, I think that uh, already answering a question, so we can begin actually talking about the short story, there's a bit of a mix between author and narrator. In this case, there is a character and narrator uh, at the same time. So... I think that the, the the thing about saying that in the title, as an author, that it's a, a fantastic narrative, it's a kind of a trick so that the our character, which doesn't have a name, feel less ridiculous and more trustable about mm -hmm. his story. Because as we will see, and as the title says, he thinks himself as the most ridiculous man of all time and when you as frank said ha uh, suspend the the reality suspend the normal laws of our world you make even the most ridiculous man seem uh, seem reasonable so i think that's the the geniosity of this operation that makes uh, right at the beginning yeah it's it's a very small thing it's it's the thing that i did not notice when i read it because i guess that's not the eye i have but it's definitely something that I'll keep in mind going forward because it's that sort of thing like about uh, writing and about reading. Reading ultimately it's a process of investigation. Yeah. It's detective work. Yeah. And we do that especially in detective novels. Yeah. But that is doesn't need to be to stay there. That yeah. can be transposed into other processes of reading, be it other novels or simply other like historical, literary, academic ones. Yeah. It's the importance of form, in yeah. a sense. Yeah, and I think as well that the form of the short story, the genre, it's particularly to the Russians, Chekhov, Gogol, all of them always said that the short story needs to be impactful. Mm -hmm. So, if you have the choice, we know that the Russians love to, uh, to write a lot. So, why would they make... Uh, 10 page story because they want to be impactful they want to be direct to the point in a manner that shocks the the, the people mm -hmm. who are reading so a thing like title the epigraph the date those kinds of things you, you can't ignore in any of them because in a short story every word counts so that's why we are giving so much attention to the, the title and the the small phrase between brackets. Yeah, I'd argue that in the truly masterful works of literature, whatever their genre is, in, in even the longest novels, every word counts. Yeah, yeah. And that is that is the literary work at its peak. Yeah. It's exactly. this minutia and that that always brings yeah. to mind uh, a famous actually Brazilian poem 
by a, a very important and that we both enjoy very much, a poet, which is Carlos Drummond de Andrade. And he, he has this specific, what is the name of the poem? You know which poem I'm talking Procura da Poesia. Procura da Poesia. The Search for Poetry, that's yeah. the name of the poem. Yeah. And it has this incredibly beautiful part, where the narrator, the lyrical voice. Yeah. He's searching for poetry, as the title says, yeah. in the very nature of the words. Yeah. And there's this beautiful bit where it's something along those lines. I'm no good poetry <laughs> translator, but it goes along like this. Get closer and contemplate the words. Each one has a thousand secret faces under the neutral face. And ask thyself, with no interest for the answer, poor or terrible, that it gives you. Did you bring the key? Oh my god. It, it's a very impactful yeah. poem for the yeah. both of us, and it yeah. was a very important point in our lives. Yeah. But it very much brings us to this point of writing. Like, yeah. to truly go deep into creating, well, art in, yeah. with writing, be it poetry, prose, or whatever. It requires this search, this inquisition, both of content and the words themselves. This yeah. preoccupation with form is not decoration it's essential yeah i think i express myself a little like i think that what we can literally yeah i think what we can literally conclude here is that every word counts in any genre and any form of, of literature but what i was trying to, to say is in the short stories every word is meticulously chosen to give a certain impact while on a novel every word is also meticulously chosen to give an ambience yeah so that that was what i was trying to because you you talked about the the <laughs> search for for poetry and you uh, i i need to correct myself because yeah in literature absolutely every word counts well, well or at least they should be the words should be treated as if they count yeah and of course, the, the great authors or the ones that strive towards it, the ones that sometimes not the, even the ones that are sung, but the ones that truly put in their work yeah. to it, they treat it as such. Of yeah. course, the poorer ones don't, but that is, I think that's the best way to think about writing that every word counts. Yeah. And the process of writing is not. And I say this as someone who writes myself. Yeah. Not very good, I don't think. But <laughs> I, I try, I'm trying. I need to get back to it, in, actually. But it's something that it, it's the writing and it's the rewriting, it's the editing, it's going back to it again and again. Yeah. And truly building the narrative, the story, the environment, the, the ideas that you're trying to bring forth. Yeah. And of course, one would obviously agree when thinking about theory, for example, but a literature is just as important and it is a fundamental experience to learn. When I mentioned before about this actual look, this investigative eye towards literature, it's an understanding, because we have that eye when we think about movies, yeah. like a movie, what it's showing us, what it's not showing us, the scene, the cinematography, all that is showing us or not showing us something. But when we're reading, we don't have that same eye, despite it being yeah. built the exact same way. Yeah. It's just more subtle here and there because of, uh, I guess, the nature of the text, I guess. Yeah. And it's something to keep in mind when, especially with what we're trying to do here, that is reading different texts from different times, from different people, from different places, and trying to, on the one hand, look at it from our perspective, uh, knowingly, and on the other, try to bring them to a larger audience and to our time. Yeah. So it's this... I didn't expect this to bring us to this sort of commentary on our own work, but that's, that's nice. Yeah. I'm enjoying <laughs> it. So let's actually begin. So, go oh. for Yeah, I know some things in there. Yeah, the beginning of, uh, I think Dostoevsky does this a lot, uh, Memories from the Neanderthal does this as well. The main character has basically this obsession that he acknowledges himself as completely ridiculous. You don't know his name, you don't know anything about his life, you don't know where he works, and basically you are left alone with a man 
that knows for sure that is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really brutal at the beginning of anything because you don't really know if you trust him or if you pity him. And it's, uh, Dostoevsky always does this to his characters and to the people who read him, which is a, a kind of sense we were talking earlier that his characters tend to not be trustable, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they are talking about their truth. Mm -hmm. So, you, you can trust them exactly, but you know that he's not lying to you. Yeah. You just know that he has his subjective truth. Yeah, on the one hand, they're unreliable, but on the, the other, they're, at least most of the time, being genuine. Yeah, or honest. I think it's the word, yeah. They're, they're bringing forth the way they look at the world. Yeah. The world. And Dostoevsky, especially in the, the, there's the scene that we'll get to, where you're clearly not supposed to pity him or feel sorry for him in any way. You're not supposed to feel compassion for him. Yeah. There's a very clear scene. And it, it, it's a way to play with the emotions of the audience, in a sense. Yeah. But it's another way to. To put, place the character in a way that he, on the one hand, well, he's not lying to you, he's being outright with you. He's, yeah. being, he's putting forward what he's, he th what he's thinking, what he's thinking about doing and all that. And he's not lying to you about it. He's confessing, in a sense. On the other, you, you're still not sure whether you trust him, whether you believe him at his word, necessarily. Yeah. Like, that's why I, I, I said, I, I think he's, I think they're being genuine. I don't think they're being disingenuous. I don't think they're necessarily lying to you. Yeah. Maybe a note of in memories from the underground. That's, <laughs> that can be discussed there because that narrator is something special. Yeah. But in most cases, and I, I think especially on crime and punishment, I don't think they're necessarily against the narrator. But, you, it's still difficult to take them at their word, especially, well, let's go back. It's a fantastic narrative. Yeah. So it, it, it's a, a very fun, very interesting ambiguity to deal with. Yeah. And like the very first lines of the short story, I am a ridiculous man. <laughs> now they call me crazy. That would be a promotion yeah. if I didn't continue being to them as ridiculous as before. Yeah. So that's brutal. <laughs> it's it's intense, yeah. to say the least. Yeah, I think as well the top of what he's trying to express here is I I noted as well. He says the fact that the public could not know that he already knew how ridiculous he was shocked and amazing. He said that the bitterest pill to swallow was this: to know that only himself would acknowledge how how ridiculous he, he is. <laughs> so he basically is strapped from both sides. He seems himself as ridiculous, and he knows that the general public and the people who live with him see him as ridiculous as well. And his greatest agony is knowing that he will never be able to express to the people who already that he is ridiculous, that he knows even more than them that he is ridiculous. It's, <laughs> it's an obsession, it's a complete circle of ridiculousness and, and thinking the same thing and, and taking a subject subjectivity and transforming it in a complete and irrefusable truth. Yeah, because it, 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 it's never made clear to us, like, why... Is he a ridiculous man? What makes him ridiculous? Yeah. It's never made clear that there's a slight indication here or there, but it's never like, no, this is why I am ridiculous. Yeah. No. But one could argue, and that was something I was thinking about as you were saying, that he is ridiculous if only because he keeps seeing himself yeah. as ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a bit of, I don't know how to say it in English, Alpha Self help. Self help, uh, genre, where, Ah, if you believe something, you become this thing, or if you have a, a positive thinking, you become positive. And here we have the complete opposite, which is a man which believes and keeps on saying a thing that actually turns his reality in 
in the thing that he believes he is. So I think that, and more on this, more on the this obsession and this kind of acid character. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the best quotes from this short story is I don't know if he says I I came to know, but. I came to know that nothing in the whole world made any difference. <laughs> this is so weird to me because actually the Russians and Dostoevsky mainly, they flirt a lot with the sense of melancholy and depression in a way that when you have a, a character that doesn't have a name, it's psychologically, it's, it's really easier to see yourself in it, to see your reflex in it, because you you don't have a, a hero or an image of a person. You, from the beginning to the end of the short story, you are inside the mind of a, a character that you don't even know the name. It's like you are in the short story, in his head. So when he feels ridiculous and when he's obsessed and when he says that nothing in the world makes any difference, there are certain moments where you actually begin to believe him and yeah. actually begin to see examples of his life that are really close to anyone's life. So I think that's the perfect book from Dostoevsky, which makes a short story that seems completely bizarre talk so much to, uh, about melancholy and about feeling alone and ridiculous. I think it's a uh, a really deep way to put the psychology of the character. Yeah, it's yeah, how one way one could define a lot of Dostoevsky's work that has this psychological nature to it. You, and that brings me back to, I think it was a friend or a colleague of mine that, that was a couple of years ago, he had recommended me, it was, it was like some writing thing, and I looked at them and I was like, nope. <laughs> because basically what they said is stay out of the mind of your characters describe the actions, have dialogue don't spend time alone with them and that's <laughs> yeah. well a lot of great writers would disagree and yeah. I'm no great writer but I completely disagree I think yeah. one of the most interesting things about writing is about delving deep into certain universes that well you normally can yeah. when you think about subjectivity in a sense you only have access to your own subjectivity. Yeah. You cannot, of course you can get hints, you can get contact, but you will never fully access another person's subjectivity. Yeah. Unless some magical or scientific way is discovered or elaborated yeah. to allow that. Yeah. But, and that's what, in one sense, what uh, makes that whole, that whole notion of standing in someone else's shoes uh, kind of silly. Because like, Sure, you can be in the, you could be in the same situation, yeah. but you're not we're going to be in the same head that faces yeah, that exactly. situation. I think that the writing is the only way you can obsess so much about a person without being jailed. Yeah, it makes sense. It's, uh, I, I think Christian Bale said this, that it's actually nice to, and he's a, a, a really good actor, and he reads a lot as well, and I think that art in general gives us the the possibility to leave ourselves behind. Mm -hmm. So in this case, as Frank was saying, we have the opportunity to actually dive deep inside the mind of a person that is not ourselves. Yeah. And that is really, really worthy. Mm -hmm. It, it, it is a powerful experience, and it's something that, uh, of course, other mediums can uh, go into, but it's something that in literature comes up a lot, and always came up a lot. And it's something to definitely think about how how to deal with, in a sense, the problem of other minds, yeah. and how we can at times delve into them, and maybe find something more for ourselves in it. And it's funny because we spend quite a bit of time talking about other aspects of a novel as a novel or as a novel short story yeah. or of the short story in general about writing about the title and we haven't even gone to the dream yeah and it's incredibly interesting because like it's just a short story and yet it, it truly can lead us to 
such wild conclusions in places. And ultimately, I guess that's one of the points of writing. Yeah. That it has this possibility to access world, worlds that we wouldn't normally. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's just, I guess in a sense, this is this line of mine. It's a testament to my love for literature. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we're here now, because it's, it's cool, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think we should maybe jump to Little Girl. Yes, yeah. yes. So basically we're presented with this ridiculous man. And he tells us a bit about his own torments, as Bruno mentioned, and his pains and anguish. And he's mentioning a bit quite a bit, and uh, a cunt warning from now to the end. He's talking very much about uh, suicide, and he mentioned how he had already gotten a gun, and that he was planning to it, but he never he, he, he couldn't force himself to it. It's, yeah. not as he, it's not as if he was reluctant. Yeah, it's, it's not about having guns. It's about being indifferent, being as indifferent as you can, so then he could suicide. Yeah, that's, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. And ultimately he's walking from somewhere back to his house at night. And he looks at the sky and he sees a little star. And for whatever reason, that pushes him over the edge and he becomes decided and obstinate about it that he will kill himself tonight. Yeah. However, as he carries on walking, he runs into a little girl that uh, screams at him for uh, her mother and asks for his help. However, he, and that's that most moment I was talking about, his our lack of compassion towards yeah. him, he turns away, ignores her, and carries on walking. Yeah. As she pulled towards him, as she yelled, as she, in a, in a very open way, he, the, the, not, the short story says this, I turned my face towards her, did, but didn't say a word, and kept walking. Only she ran and pulled at me, and in her voice, there was that sound that in, in very scared children meant despair. Yeah. I know that sound. And it's... That's a bit of, as well, reading now, it's a bit of a of an insight of his life, because he knows the cry of despair. Yeah, that, I, I didn't think about it before, yeah. but that's absolutely true. Yeah. And he just ignores her and carries on. Ultimately, when he gets home and he holds the gun in his hand and he's thinking about ending it all. He remembers the little girl and a lot about how, well, since he was going to kill himself or since he is going to kill himself, then it doesn't matter what he did or didn't do to the little girl since he was going to end it all. Yeah. And that, again, brings us uh, to that individual aspect of the short story, that the world begins and ends with him. Yeah. So... Whatever he did with the little girl would be inconsequential if he did, if he killed himself. Yeah. Of course, that doesn't really work for him yeah. as he continues to think about it. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily in a guilty manner, I might add. Yeah. He doesn't feel uh, regret in a sense for not helping her, but I guess the fact that he didn't do anything, the fact that he was utterly indifferent and his complete indifference towards everything. As he's trying to kill himself, he keeps thinking back to the little girl, and he can't bring his indifference to be complete yeah. and to, in this, I guess, a nihilist gesture, kill himself. And that's when he has his dream. He's sitting in a, in his desk with the gun in his hand or at the desk, yeah. and he mentions that he wasn't able to sleep for a for, year. <laughs> for a year. It was a year? Yeah. Wow. And... At that time, he sleeps barely without noticing and has his dream. Yeah. So now we begin the <laughs> the crazy the crazy part. If you want to take any drugs, feel feel well <laughs> because it it becomes completely bizarre. So when this dream begins, it's actually I don't know really how to where to begin because I think that. The most important elements are his guy, mm -hmm. the star, yes, and the new world. Mm. I think you should should begin because okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you you. I'm can. a bit troubled right now. <laughs> understandable, <laughs> understandable. So uh, I I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over what pretty much happens, 
Yeah. And then we'll go back and uh, read them in a sense or reflect on them in a, in a greater way. So when he he falls asleep without realizing, and in his dream he pretty much uh, follows through with his suicide and shoots himself in the heart. In the heart and not in the head. Yeah, it, which was something he was noticing that he, when he was going to kill himself, he would shoot himself in the head. In the head. Yeah, I think a bit of an important remark to make before we talk about the dream is that he says that he gives an example that he usually dreamt about his brother who mm-hmm. died six years ago and he was remarking and saying that dreams in general are more dear to the heart than to the mind yes so as a sense of illustrative manner the the scene where he pulls the gun down and shots shot uh, shoots himself in the heart it's really allegorical in a sense of he's shaking his his heart and leaving his logic behind mm-hmm. so he can try to investigate or try to like a phoenix like to be reborn from a destroyed heart and try to actually find something about love about hope about anything that makes his life a bit more a, a bit less senseless yeah absolutely and it's very much a dream where he suspends his reason his logic and he goes deeper into his heart and an emotional and sensible sense instead of a logical and reasoning and scientific Mindalistic. way yeah it, 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 it's much more of a dream involving the heart than the mind yeah. although there are elements it's, there's this difference again so that's how his dream, in a sense, begins. He's then he's guided by a pitch black human figure. Yes, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, <it's> yeah. <laughs> stuck, and he is guided uh, by this figure towards the stars. And he's shown the star that he was looking at, the one that led him to to want to follow through with his suicide. Yeah, which in this case was serious, and he's then take it away, far, far away from the solar system, from a galaxy, from anything known. And he is led towards a place that looks pretty much exactly like the solar system. A sun that is not our sun, but is our sun. And an earth that is not our earth, but is our. And there he finds a very different humanity. And the way he defines it, and that's in a sense why it's a very... It has a very biblical tone. It's a society that, as the narrator himself defines it, that was not corrupt by the fall, by sin. There was no fall in this earth. As such, it's, I guess, the way you define it is a pure society. Filled with innocence and happiness and joy. and Friendship between people, between animals. Yeah, it's pure harmony. Harmony, I think, is the key word there. And, of course, he, he ends up noting that there is no science, there is no logic, I guess. Philosophy. Exactly. That's very important. Yeah. And, and yet, there is this beauty, this paradise. Yeah. As he mentions. I, th- I think the, the beauty of this kind of utopia, right, which he's talking about, is the sense of, the absence of needing to talk about anything. Mm-hmm. He, he says all the time that he understood other people without talking Mm -hmm. so there's a a kind of a free language perfection where people had no words to express themselves but in the in the same way at the same time they didn't need those words because they could uh, understand themselves without needing to say anything It's a sort of completeness of being, yeah, in a way, and community as well. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. There, there's this a, a true human community. Yeah, in a sense. and it is in that sense that I, I in the beginning said it was, it worked as a bit as a manifesto mm-hmm. because it looks like a project. It looks like a project for humankind. Yeah, in that sense, that's how it, it's mentioned. The only difference between that Earth and this one is that the entire Earth 
was in every chance a single insane insane paradise. These people, joyfully laughing, came to me and cared for me, took me with them, and each one of them wanted to, in a sense, call me, make me happier. And oh, they didn't make me any question, but it was as if as they already knew everything. So it seemed and wanted to uh, expunge as soon as possible the suffering in my face. Yeah. There's this real sense of tranquility, of joy, purity. And as it goes on, they, this is a great part of the transformative experience for the narrator. That this dream, this true human beauty, that before the fall, or that would be a possible future if there was no fall, is perfect. Yeah. Simply put. And then, well, you want me to get to the... Yeah. Okay. So uh, what I'm referencing is, as he carries on uh, describing this utopia, this yeah. paradise, this new earth, that despite not having the same technology, despite not having the science, yeah. it was happy. And ultimately, that's the notion we get from the author, that that's what truly mattered. However, what ends up happening is that he, he confesses that he perverted them all. Yeah. <laughs> that he ultimately was responsible for the original sin in that new earth, yeah. or that other earth. Mm. And he doesn't explicitly say how he did it, or it, it doesn't even say that he wanted to do it, but it, in a sense it, it kind of happened. happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a good human being, he, it kind of happened that he destroyed perfection. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically it. Pretty much. And as he says, that it, it may have started innocently, but oh. And then there was voluptuousness, then there was jealousy, and then cruelty, yeah. and plans, and quickly and faster than yeah. everything happened as yeah. it happened before. Yeah. And, and that's why they created new languages. And he, I think that's a bit of geniosity of Dostoevsky again. He basically describes what the what the earth is, but giving the pretext looks like a horrible place to be. Yeah. So he's saying, oh, and there's different languages and different alliances, and people are judging each other, and they are doing wars, and and saying that this world is better than the world that they lived before, because mm -hmm. if this happened, it, it was supposed to happen. So... Uh, in that sense, you think, oh my god, we're so stupid. And then you remember that we are like this. Yeah, it's as if he birthed, birthed the entire Earth anew. Yeah. And he does it quite quickly, I mean, yeah. and very skillfully. Yeah. And in a sense, when we think about the Ridiculous Man's manifesto, it, it's almost, and this is, this means no this or disrespect in a sense, but it's pretty much an anarcho-primitivist manifesto in a sense. Yeah. It's this returning to this purity, this innocence before technology, before science. Before private property. Exactly. Yeah. And that, and ultimately after all that, after this whole dream, it's very interesting because he, who at the beginning of his time in this new earth was cared for, cherished and loved, ultimately he becomes the, the villain. Yeah. 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 He's the madman and he is uh, the responsible and uh, the problem of it all. And he's, in a sense, taken away right before he wakes up. He's about to be punished. Yeah. And when he wakes up, he, he reaches this conclusion that he will proclaim and that he will bring forth yeah. this truth that he yeah. saw. This truth that it was this return that mattered. It's a very strange thing. And that's why I think this novel doesn't cease to be... The short story. story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Uh, it's about this psychological character that you ultimately don't really trust. Yeah. Because he he doesn't... It, it's hard to believe that he actually, truly wants to struggle for this old new earth. Yeah. It's... He's proclaiming this truth. He is, and, and I forget the explicit translation, but that he is, he's doing all this for doing it, for yeah. the sake of doing yeah. it. He doesn't necessarily do it for the creation and for the reality of this whole new earth. Yeah. He does it for the sake of doing it. Yeah. And in that sense, that, that's not a really, well, social or 
public or political interest. It's an individual one. Yeah. It's it's calming his conscience. Yeah. And, and, and not being as transformative actor. Yeah, and in the end it becomes more Catholic and biblical as ever because <laughs> he says that actually the only way to express this individuality and this kind of truth that he has seen is to be good to your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically I think that the, the geniosity of the Dostoevsky here, I think that even as we are doing this podcast, like there must be thousands of podcasts in the world which talk about literature. There are thousands of real masterful people who thought about literature and talked about it in essays and lots of things but you should uh, know yeah <laughs> but i after being in contact with this academic world and this general world of literature i happened to discover for myself uh, my truth <laughs> compared <laughs> to the truth of the short story is that the thing that you the one of the most valorous things that you can offer to anyone to any anyone else is the sense of your impression and your subjectivity about something that could be simple and here Dostoevsky does exactly this you have in the beginning strange short story which evolves into a manifesto and you have a last paragraph which literally is one of the the biblical sense is that it's the Ten Commandments into one. Yeah, exactly. Be, be nice to your neighbors. Be, yeah, it's, be a gentle person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's love thy neighbor as I have loved thee. So I can help to as well note how this is so far away from the typical Christian right wing family. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because I didn't even. I didn't even felt the the need to talk about left and right and politics, but you you have here basically a a short story which in three pages described the whole genesis, <laughs> pretty much. And in the end, he's saying about he's preaching about a world, a perfect world, which the basis of it, the pure Catholicism, the pure notion of respecting each other and caring for each other and thinking about things not in a private way but in a community way as he mm -hmm. as he could enjoy and see in the non-sinful earth that he visited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting and I think in that sense that's why the, the, the matter of distrust which is, this is the narrator's manifesto, it's not Dostoevsky's manifesto. Yeah. And I think that, I'm overreaching of course, but I think some of Dostoevsky's cynicism in this, in the writing of this, is the constant portrayal of the ridiculous man's determination. Yeah. Because it's not, uh, as I was mentioning, it's not a focus, it's not a need for this old new earth, this, to make this sinful, this unsinful earth. Yeah. It, it's not that, it's about the preaching, it's about his, obsession with speaking about it, with being like a, the proclaimer of this truth for him. Yeah. And that, that's what it's about. It, it focuses yeah, on we, him. We land again on the, the sense of not trusting the, the, the character, but as well knowing he's talking a truth that is dear to him. Exactly. And in that sense, this, of course, there's a very a Christian element to this message. And foolish to think that there's no Christian undertones, be it through the entire story or yeah. especially in the ending. But it is, it's not a complete, it's not an honest portrayal in a sense. And I mean honest in the sense that it's not, we're not necessarily supposed to wholeheartedly agree with the man. Yeah. I, I, I'm not led towards this. Even if by his, I guess sometimes too overt of a determination in the end, it's, it's very, Fast paced, it's yeah. speedy, it's unco there's a inconsistency there. Yeah. And while it's not that his message is wrong or negative, but there's yeah. some, and I'm sorry for not expressing myself too well, but there's just something yeah. peculiar about yeah, it. Yeah, I think he seems not now 
realizing this. <laughs> I think he seems like an anti-messiah. Because he kills himself. He goes to an earth, uh, untouched earth. Then he corrupts this earth. So he's basically the opposite of Jesus. <laughs> and then the people which he corrupted try to kill him. And then he wakes up in the world in a world which is corrupted. So basically the the kind of voyage which it does inside the short story has the same qualities of a messianical kind of adventure, if if you will. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I can help to, to think about it. It's it has the sacrifice and it has the no uh, I began to think about the messianical side of this when you talked about the will to talk about it, mm -hmm. the like a bit of a, a kind of happiness and euphoria which normal people don't have, mm -hmm. and that is really dear to messianical characters mm -hmm. which need to be joyful and talk and convince people that mm -hmm. there is something else, there's something more, mm -hmm. th th there's there's good in, in the world that you can achieve and, and fight for. <laughs> yeah, I... It, it's, it, it's very powerful, it's very... In a sense, I guess that why I am an easy in a sense is because it's very hard to support any, pretty much any of the conclusions that I've been making because it's, <laughs> it's, it's ambiguous at many points. Yeah. And especially at the end, but it, it's hard to... I'm going to read just the end, and I want to make a point about the last paragraph, yeah. because it can at one point support a certain idea or discredit another. Yeah. But here we go. The main thing is, love others as yourself. That's the main thing. Just that. You don't even need to do more or less. Immediately, you will discover the way to figure it out, of getting, or of getting yourself right. Uh, however, this is only a no-truth. Repeated and read a billion times, and even then it didn't catch on. Quotation marks. The conscience of life is superior to life. Knowledge of the laws of happiness superior to happiness. End of quotation marks. It's against all of this that it's necessary to fight for, and that's what I'm going to do. It only requires that all want is, and everything will figure itself out right now. And now the final paragraph. And about that little girl, I found her, and I will carry on, and I will carry on. It, it seems almost like a tribalistic manifesto. <laughs> He's preaching about the non, the non society, mm -hmm. the non, the, the sense of before law, mm -hmm. before language, before everything. Yeah. But, oh, okay. yeah. Uh, Go ahead. And I think that's something that is important. It's not as if. Like, he has a point. It's hard to think that... That he's completely wrong. Yeah, it's difficult to disagree with him yeah, entirely. Yeah, exactly. But, on the other hand, it's... I don't know, I can't help but feel skeptical. Because, ultimately, and I guess that's what brings some of this distrust at the very end, he said that he found the little girl, and he'll carry on. One, like, he found the little girl, and then what? Like, yeah. did he help her? Did he find her? That, that doesn't, isn't made clear, and I don't think that's without reason. And even yeah. then, he'll carry on. He'll carry on doing what? Yeah. Preaching, acting, and I guess that's in a sense like he's proclaiming himself as this sort of prophet. Yeah. He's very much positing himself as a prophet. He's yeah. knower of the truth, and then yeah. he will do something. Yeah. And that's why he mentions he found the little girl. But what about it? Did he find her? Did he help her? She yeah. was looking for her mother. So did he help her find her? Did he only uh, see her? Whatever. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's a lack of action to him. The action for him is the preaching. And that, yeah. at least to me, like maybe I've just become a bit cynical or skeptical. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be too little. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't mean to disagree with you, but I can help, I can help to think about that the counterpoint to this is the fact that the manifesto that he, the the preaching that he wants to make is about it's really paradoxical but the preaching is about not preaching basically because it's a personal kind of adventure mm. and as well 
he he discovered a a kind of truth that is dear to him, and that gave him the the courage to carry on. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And in that way, like I was talking about the tribalistic sense of the perfection of that uh, untouched earth, which had no no languages and no different tribes and any of that. I think that I don't know if <laughs> the the character or Dostoevsky or both wanted to end the short story like. Yeah, you will continue on civilization there on your your social and psychological life. But I understood the truth, and the truth is we need to subvert and try to exit this this civilization type of thinking. Mm -hmm. So at the same time that I I as well do not trust him in the end, like. What the hell did oh I found the girl. Yeah, so what? <laughs> but at the same time, it seems perfect to end here because yeah. the 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 meaning of the truth that he found that, that he found would imply would be anti logical if he kept on talking. Yeah, I agree. Because he already did this when he uh, there is a I don't know, four pages of him describing this this perfect earth with a perfect humanity. So when he already discovered the truth, he doesn't need to talk about it anymore because he already knows it. Yeah. It's it's a bit sense. it's a bit buddhistical in a sense of reaching a nirvana. Yeah. But at the same time that's the geniosity. You you can think about both. You mm -hmm. can you can not trust him, but Think that he's really clever because he won't talk about it anymore. Yeah, and only I think we get back to this question, like we thought about it at the beginning. Now think about it at the end. Is he still ridiculous? Is he less ridiculous? Yeah. Uh, was he ridi ever ridiculous? Yeah. And I, to that, I don't want to give a definite answer. Yeah. Because that that can vary. Like on the one hand, you can think that okay, he was ridiculous before being indifferent. Now he isn't, he has meaning, he has purpose. Yeah. On the other hand, you can call him ridiculous before and after. Yeah. It's like indifferent or with a purpose or this vain purpose in a sense, this truth that he so-called, that he proclaims, he is still just as ridiculous. Yeah. In his conviction to either his ridiculousness or his truth, he remains the same. Or you can even argue that, no, he wasn't ridiculous before his indifference his obsession with his ridiculousness didn't necessarily make him ridiculous. Yeah. You can say that. Yeah. And you can say that after this process, after this letting go and this focusing on this truth, then he becomes ridiculous. Yeah, because he's a bit too bubbly and happy about <laughs> life after deciding that he was going to kill himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that brings me to thinking like ridiculous. Like yeah. When we think about the word, like it's a very specific word. It's yeah. not a commonly used word at any rate, like I, I don't use it often yeah. like, at all or yeah. see it often and yet it's very it's made clear and it's used quite a bit in, in the short story. Yeah. I think that trying to answer all the questions that you pose but at the same time leaving it uh, open, I think the ridiculousness of this man is the euphoria and the complete absoluteness that he gives to the stages of his life because in the beginning when he's trying to kill himself he's doing a, a bit of a nihilistic manifesto about don't caring about anything so that is ridiculous because <laughs> you can't argue that he, he even goes to the point of saying that he didn't see people in the streets and ran into them because oh my god I'm so indifferent to the world that I don't even see people that's ridiculous <laughs> But after all this adventure in a, a perfect world, and then he becomes like all messianical and stuff, he's also ridiculous. <laughs> so the ridiculousness of this character is being innocent, too innocent, mm -hmm. too innocent to believe that life is black and white. I think that that's the the main thing that came to my mind. He, he he's ridiculous because he's a bit of a individual totalitarian. That is interesting. Yeah.
not sure how to respond to that, so <laughs> I'll just give my own way to answer the questions I made. I think that it, I think that it's ultimately up to us to decide whether he's ridiculous or not. Exactly. Because like on the one hand, you could say that the title was Dostoevsky, and Dostoevsky's calling him ridiculous. Yeah. But beyond that, you you see, you only you have no narrator. You have the main character, which is also the narrator. Uh, describing himself as ridiculous. So, I guess it's up to us to make that judgment whether we find him ridiculous and yeah. for what reason. Yeah, and we, and we don't know as well about Dostoevsky because we don't know if he thought of the, the main character as ridiculous in the beginning and then he became non-ridiculous or if he wasn't ridiculous and turned into a ridiculous person. Yeah. So, I think that's the... That's always the geniosity of the big writers. You can talk about it in an undefinable amount of time <laughs> because you will always find more things and even things that the author didn't want to be inside the short story, but the way he constructed gave the, the this literary piece to be infinite. To be, to be infinite uh, it, it can be expandable, it can be it is more than black and white. Yeah, it's ultimately the notion that literature, well, that a, a piece of literature is not done when it is written. Yeah. It's only done, well, it's never done, but it's only done when it's read. Yeah. So it, it's that, that freeway path. It's, it's the writer writing, it's the text, and it's the reader reading. Exactly, and I think that, that the most beautiful thing about literature, I will give an example from Brazil, we, I'm talking about Drummond again. One time Drummond visited the University uh, of São Paulo and he went into a class about his literature and his poetry. And I know this story because uh, a teacher of mine talked about it. And he said that in this class, Drummond was there uh, and they were talking about Rosa do Povo. And, the Rose uh, of the People. Yeah, Rose of the People or Clara uh, Enigma. And, Clear, I don't know. The, the clear enigma. Yeah, the clear enigma. And a student raised his hand and said, Ah, because, Mr. Drummond, I think that in this verse you're trying to talk about, I don't know, the, the subjectivity of, uh, of living in Minas Gerais, anything in this, in these lines. And Drummond said, Oh, that's really great, but I didn't intend to write about any of this. <laughs> like, uh, and, and that's the geniosity of literature and the the humbleness of the the big authors, which all great literary works they escape the author and they fly into a state of almost ideological. Uh, it's it's really cliche, but ideas are bulletproof in a sense <laughs> that. After, you can't uh, erase from the mind of people what a, a literary work made to their heads. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, that's the geniosity of Drummond. That's the geniosity that we're talking a bit about here in, mm -hmm. uh, in Dostoevsky. And this episode would have a thousand hours. But yeah. we, <laughs> we are trying to resume it. Yeah, yeah. and um, as a, a conclusion to that, it's, it's a notion that the author could have had a million ideas when he was writing and putting things to paper. Ultimately, all we have is that paper. That's yeah. the product of his work, and that's what we must work on. Yeah. And sure, we can hypothesize and say, oh, they wanted to say that, this or that. We don't know, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter they want to say this or that. It matters that he said this, and yeah. from this, what can we take? Yeah, we can take this or that, and that's that's the whole thing. Like, yeah, that's the beautiful part of When the it. author makes his work, like it's beyond him now. Yeah, his hand, his work is done. Yeah. he can't go back and keep retconning it and yeah. say, "Oh no, this was that." And uh, to those that are more more witty of you would have will have noticed. Oh, one of the ex clear examples that I'm getting at, which is J.K. Rowling. Yeah. She does Rowling. that all the time. Like She goes, oh, no, but that character did that, and he yeah. was that, and yeah. that's blah, blah, blah. And also, like, the cinema world, George Lucas did that, like, Han Solo in the question, in the debate of who shot first, Han Solo or Greedo. And he actually did a 
boss in the editing, he did, he was so obsessed about the, the fact that actually hand shot first and that would make him a bad guy that he edited the scene after to make Brido shoot first and miss <laughs> and then Han shoot after and kill Brido. So that, that's the, that's, it's, it's perfect with the way you put it because uh, as JK Rowling as well, it's a sense of, it's like, seeing a, a poem that you wrote uh, 10 years ago and oh uh, this looks ridiculous i need to rewrite it um like that doesn't work that that, that isn't truthful to your work yeah like the work you, yeah and that, that's a very interesting question being faithful to your own work yeah and like admitting like okay this was shit yeah but <laughs> that's fine hey, i'm too. not the same person that i was and, and exactly. let's move beyond that yeah let's not try and keep like, oh no, but this had that meaning. It's not up to you to decide anymore. Yeah. Your work as the author is done. Yeah. It's no longer up to the author to keep going back to his work and giving more or less meaning. Yeah. It's up to the reader to decide. And if the author wants to, wants to act as a reader, then that's another thing entirely. But that's not what happens. The author wants to claim by their authority as the author to say that their work had this or that. Yeah. And it might, it might not. It's yeah. not up to them. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the perfect way to end it. Yeah, I think this was a very fun talk about literature in general. Yeah. And like, I don't know, a, a good break, I guess. Yeah. Away from like, of course we're going to be talking about politics. Of course, our yeah. view is related to everything we do. Yeah. But it's good to, well, I guess, do this sort of meta conversation yeah, exactly. about our own interest in yeah. literature, in writing, yeah. and about like the authors and writing itself. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think this. Yeah. I think this. Yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to be here, guys. So yeah, once again, uh, thank you for listening to the left page. Yeah. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash left page. You can find us on Twitter at, at left page pod. We um we've got some more projects going on. We got a couple of uh, exactly a couple of patrons, <laughs> and uh, we're deeply thankful thankful for it yeah and we we're, we're working on a couple of things we we've got things in the works and we're planning it it's it's just semesters are busy and <laughs> i guess that's just, just a sort of a confession and at one time that <sighs> yeah just that <laughs> but yeah, yeah thank you for listening and we should be back soon with more literature talk and yeah Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. To the next one.
But he couldn't quite get, he couldn't remember, he'd never forget. Caught within a dream, within a dream, a man within a man. Caught within a thought, within a thought. An ocean so deep. He would drown in his sleep.